Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. And we are back with part two of our three-part physical media series to close out the second season of Watch with Jen or the 2021 season. Next up, we have one of my favorite people and the film critic and essayist who, along with his friend and talented editor and writer Bill Chambers, makes Film Freak Central such a must-read for cinephiles everywhere. That's right. It's the brilliant writer and historian, Walter Cha. Walter, I want to thank you so much for being here once again. I'm constantly hitting you up to be on the Watch with Jen pod and share your wisdom once again. So I'm glad you were doing me this honor. How are you doing and how's winter treating you? You know, I'm, I'm good. And, and you know, I wouldn't do it if you weren't one of my favorite people. So thanks for oh. asking me. It's <laughs> always you. fun to talk. I always feel like I learn a lot when we talk. And so... It's it's cool to still learn stuff, you know, about movies that you feel like you know a little bit about, and it's cool to share enthusiasm for stuff. That's great. I mean, I think so often film critics get this rap for not liking movies or hating everything they see or everything. It's like, well, it's just by volume we see more than yeah. the average person does, and most we see stuff that you would just avoid naturally mm-hmm. if you had any kind of sense. You know, you see a trailer for like something, something part seven, and you'd be like, ah, this is not going to go, but we have to go, yeah. and so we go and we don't like it, and then you get this rap. And but anyway, anyway, yes. I think it's really fun to talk about movies that we love, and so you know, you're particularly good at picking out um, titles that are just those like great undiscovered or not widely talked about gems um yeah like last of sheila which we'll talk about today i guess and you know i love i love the jimmy stewart anthony mann westerns yes um that they did together i love their whole entire collaboration i think what did they do eight or nine movies together but i think five or six of those are westerns and Mm -hmm. amazing stuff so i'm really excited to talk about that with you too yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And like Walter was saying, I brought him back today to obviously talk about anything he wants, but especially in this case to celebrate the two gorgeous new Warner Archive Blu-ray releases of two films we do both love, The Naked Spur and The Last of Sheila. We could go with either one first, but starting chronologically, let's go with the third of five Westerns and um, of eight total films they did make together that Anthony Mann directed with James Stewart in the Cracker Jack 91 minute 1953 Western noir, The Naked Spur, centered on a bounty hunter played by Stewart who tries to bring Robert Ryan's murderer to justice with the aid of two shady strangers, Ralph Meeker and Millard Mitchell, the film co-starring Janet Leigh, begins quickly by tossing you right into the action. And it's a dark, fast-paced thriller. That's one of Mann and Stewart's best. I know you mentioned that, like me, you love the Western genre, but I've never been asked to talk about it. So I can't wait to hear your thoughts on The Naked Spur. It's interesting. We had that conversation sort of. Yes. I've never been asked to talk about a really either. Me neither. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think it's because I'm Asian and maybe because you're a woman and that yeah. people just look at us and we're like, that's not where we're going to go with the Western. But <laughs> I adore Westerns. I love them yeah. because, you know, largely because I think they're set in this liminal period. Most of them are where the United States was transitioning from the post-Civil War period mm-hmm. into sort of the more industrialized railroad 
um, proliferated uh, America. And, and, and so, so many of these Westerns are about the passing of a romanticized period, uh, which ultimately is a very short period in our history. It's like yeah. whenever people talk about the 1960s, you know, and the flower power and the summer of love and everything, we're really only talking about two years when we talk about the 1960s. And so similarly with the Western, we're really only talking about 30 or 40 years there where you had cowboys, you had this sort of uh, wild west, deadwood, uh, foundation of a nation and mm-hmm. its rules and laws. Um, it's a very short period. And it's that period that people are reckoning in the United States with the loss of this sort of manifest uh, feeling of limitless expansion. And yeah. we, you know, we reach the coast and suddenly that's it. This place that we thought we could never explore completely, we have. And now the railroads are connecting everything. And so uh, the country is shrinking. And you can you, you feel that, especially like in the cinematography of Greg Toland and his collaborations with John Ford, where you see the... Uh, sky is shrinking into these low shots of ceilings and the people boxing themselves into door frames and uh, uh, restricted spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, with Anthony Mann's Westerns that he did with, with, with Jimmy Stewart, it's more of a psychological space that, that, yeah. that they're boxed into. Right. Um, he, mm-hmm. you know, his, his performances for man, Jimmy Stewart's are just freaking extraordinary. You know, I, I, Naked Spurs often regarded as the best of these Westerns, I actually prefer a li- slightly, I love all of them, but slightly mm-hmm. prefer Winchester 73, which yeah. was the first of their collaborations. And in it, you know, it's another tale of vengeance. They all seem to be. And in, in it, he beats a man almost to death for information. And the look on Jimmy Stewart's face is terrifying. You know, you don't really see that or think of that when you think of Jimmy Stewart, I think generally. And then, um, and then at the end of it, spoiler alert, he kills, spoiler alert, I'm going to pause, spoiler alert. Forward, like, like 10 seconds he he murders um someone and he leaves the body it's his brother and he leaves the body in the in the wild for vultures to pick at it and so there's an extraordinary you called it western noir there's an extraordinary yes darkness to um these anthony man westerns and yeah I, I, there's so much more to go i i i'm gonna let you go because I, i'm just gonna monologue about this so so yeah you you go naked spur Naked Spur. I just love the genre too. I think that these movies um, do, you know, come from that period where America was trying to figure out what it wanted to be and what it was uh, for better and worse with the good and the evil, you know, black hat, white hat, when a lot of these Westerns are the ones I love really do focus on the gray which is very important. You brought up the claustrophobia and I love it with wide open spaces. You wouldn't think that it's claustrophobic. I recently just talked to our good friend, Bill Boyle about Red Rock West. And we were talking about the wide open spaces of the Southwest and that Southwestern noir, which is wonderful. And it does. Doll, yeah. yeah. They wind up coming back to this town of Red Rock, can't get away. So it's very claustrophobic. I love that contradiction. And that's in a lot of these films. Man really does focus on um, the psychological aspects. Last year, I did an episode with the author Eric Beatner on um, Anthony Mann's film noir and some of his lesser known noirs as well. And um, I touched on the fact that as much as I love his noirs, I mean, Raw Deal is amazing. I really have a soft spot for these Westerns. You mentioned Winchester 73, which I know I saw because I kind of grew up watching these with my dad in the 90s, but I don't fully remember it. But Man from Laramie with Jimmy Stewart was also really good 
darker sensibility. Oh, good. Yeah. And man's uh, Western that I think is the favorite does not star uh, Jimmy Stewart, Gary Cooper, man of the West. Oh man. is just like a towering achievement. I made the pandemic movie club, watch it. And I think they liked it. Uh, I was the one to choose the Western. So I was like trying (laughs) to bring that into the group, but yeah. It's so bleak. It's it so, bleak. so bleak. Yes. Yeah. And and uh, another American icon in Gregory Peck, who, who you know, I think the, the best directors really figured out. Oh, Gary Cooper. The, yeah. Yeah. Or, oh, sorry. Sorry, Gary Cooper. Yeah. The best directors really figured out the underlying darkness of our matinee idols, right? I mean, I think yeah. Hitchcock was the master of that, of course. And, you know, finding the lizard uh, brain that <laughs> drives Cary Grant. And also, you know, casting Jimmy Stewart and Vertigo as Scotty is like one of the worst most yeah. re- repulsive characters in film history is brilliant. It's like casting Tom Hanks as Ted Bundy or something. There's something mm-hmm. really genius about that. And, you know, Jimmy Stewart, before he went off to war in 1941, he was in like these sort of lighthearted. He was like an MGM programmer. He yes. was seen as sort of a lighthearted guy. I uh, love you. Can't take it with you. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington, of course, but like Destry rides again, you know, is this big mm-hmm. kind of almost slaps at comedy and he goes away and then he comes back, you know, even shop around the corner, which I love. So he goes away to war and he comes back. And the first movie he wants to do is it's a wonderful life, which is essentially about suicide and despair and depression. Yes. It's, a know, dark it's, one. It's, it's dark. And a lot of these guys like John Houston, when he came back, he wanted to do treasure of the Sarah Madre. And you know, mm-hmm. these guys come back from war, having seen things. So there, there's a lot of good books about Jimmy Stewart's wartime service. You know, he was very, decorated but also saw a lot of stuff our firebombing or you know all the war crimes that we committed in germany and stuff he was wounded by that mentally emotionally and the mm-hmm. m- movies that he chose reflect that damage you know we think of jimmy stewart as everybody's all you know he writes poems about his dog and his horse and, oh my gosh yeah you know, we we love him right but yeah. he's the movies that he did when he got back from the war are extraordinarily dark and and you know he did three with hitchcock he did eight with man i mean he really it was exploring this other side of him. And the Westerns that he did for Man, Winchester 73, The Furies with Robert Stanwyck, Bend of the River, N- Naked Spur, and Man from Laramie are just like, you know, the, the Furies isn't really a Western, but I think kind of. Anyway, um, these movies that he did with Man, you know, reveal these deep pockets of neuroses. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the, the prototypical film noir hero who returns from war and finds the world essentially changed. You know, at the end of Naked Spur, he actually has a full-on breakdown, which is extraordinary. Where yes. he, you know, he's like strapping a body onto a horse and crying and saying, look, this is just who I am. I just yeah. sell, I sell for, for money. money. Yep. And, and, you know, you talked about the claustrophobia. We're talking about the claustrophobia and, you know, uh, and Red, Red Rock West and Noir and everything. I think it's it's essential to the American character, this mm-hmm. di- this tension, this irresolvable tension between the wide open spaces and the beauty of this land and the inability for us as individuals to live up to the ideals upon which this country was founded. True. Um, you know, and, and, and we're like trapped by our tribalism, by racism, which is our essential uh, yeah. Achilles heel, you know, and, 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 we haven't been able to shake it. We're only 200 years old. You know, we, we, we've, we're a very young country with very little history. And, you know, mm-hmm. if, if we think of us as, as a child, we're still like barely entering into our adolescence. And if we should survive this period, you know, hopefully we enter into more, uh, you know, mature age, but I love the Westerns and the noirs because they do explore 
that duality that we don't seem to be able to ever redress in our national yeah. character, you know, and um, Jimmy Stewart's perfect for that, you know, and, and Gary Cooper is perfect for that. And, and Pac even is perfect for that, you know, in, in, in his yeah. dark, uh, uh, what he, uh, the dark Westerns he did too, where you say, look, there's nothing more all American than the Western, but look at the, the pain. And, and, you know, one of my favorite movies this year, the harder they fall, deals with it from a really fascinating racial um, perspective as well. And I just, uh, man, there's so much good stuff, so much good stuff, but um, yeah, naked spur and talk, talk to me about Janet Lee. what do you think of her? Oh, I thought she was really good. Yeah. And to touch on what you were saying about America, I love Westerns. It's always funny when people say they don't like them, but they like crime movies because one of my favorite quotes, of course, is is Martin Scorsese saying, uh, John Ford made Westerns, I make street movies, but they're the same thing. Essentially, those same ingredients are right there. Janet Lee, it's great to have a female character in this, um, a complex female character who isn't just like the girlfriend or whatever. We see her being torn to Robert Ryan, who's amazing in this movie. Um, he was like a friend of her father's and dad got killed. And so she feels like a loyalty or that she owes this man, but also recognizes more and more as the film goes on that, hey, this is not a good guy. And he's manipulating everybody. I love the psychological tricks he plays on people. And so it's cool to see her sort of reach that character arc or the realization of what she wants um, for her future because she probably hadn't really thought of it just thought she owed this guy and was going to go along with him Um, because back then especially you know what would a woman um, how would she have been able to live a single woman alone in the west and so she just probably latched herself onto this because her dad had passed away um, or been killed actually but yeah she is great in this film really is and that character arc that you describe is really fascinating and i love how she's not glammed up in this movie i mean she no. was like part of you know she was like brangelina she was part of the most or you know elizabeth taylor and richard burton she was married mm-hmm. to tony curtis i think in 51 and um they were like huge they were like this glamorous couple they were hollywood yeah. royalty you know they 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 uh spurned Howard Hughes to pursue their romance. They, they took a lot of <laughs> risks, you know, uh, for it. And they became like, they were tabloid fodder top of every edition was, you know, movie, film magazine or whatever was about Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. And then she shows up in this movie wearing um, shapeless dungarees and she plays a, you know, kind of a tomboy or, you know, and, and there's, it's great. And I don't think you get to see her enough like this throughout her course of her no. career, her, really acting really embodying a role. And I love what you said about women in Westerns, because so often, you know, with the exception of like the Stanwicks or the, you know, Johnny guitars or whatever with the Crawfords, women so often they're not, they don't have a lot of options. You know, they're more like the women in Unforgiven where if you're, if you're, if your husband dies, you got one choice or like in uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, there's that mm-hmm. wonderful scene or horrible scene, whichever you, you know, however you watch it, but um, where the, the, the widow realizes that her only options to survive are to either find someone else to marry her, which, you know, some pickings or to become a prostitute. Those are the two professions yeah. that are available to her um, in that city. And so it's like, uh, yeah. And, and without touching on it, the movie touches on it. And I think some yeah. of the advanced movies are like this, you know, they remind me, in their economy of the renowned films, the the, the Bud Boddicker uh, 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 movies with Randolph Scott, where 
they tell what they need to tell in like ne- less than 90 minutes. They're, they're short reelers. You know, they, they, uh, they wanted to get maximum play on these and these Anthony Manns have become, you know, bend of the river is extraordinary too. have become just these um, uh, monuments to uh, cross genre. And, you know, I think when people say stuff like, I don't like the Western and I like crime movies, it's like, almost every Western I can think of as a crime movie. Yeah. I don't really understand that distinction. And mm-hmm. I think there's some sort of prejudice against Westerns as sort of like odors. And I think, you know, our, our own critical, you know, structure for films or whatever was really defined by the French and before the French and all the movies that they were given after world war two to look at, we did consider stuff like Hitchcock, stuff like this, stuff like gangster movies, not to be really art, not to be really yeah, something they to were look at. secondary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even among movies, which are already devalued as art, right? These were the, mm-hmm. the, the, the dregs of the drags, the, the shortest of the short. And so they, they, they were given that kind of like, you know, um, real and we see it now with horror films right they're, they're given a real cultural stigma mm-hmm. um and, you know but westerns carry that as well and that's why i was so excited about power of the dog kind of this year with uh, jane campion um yeah. where you know our most poetic and literary director uh jane campion tackles the western and so it's like the these are not anti-westerns in a way all the best westerns are anti-westerns yes you know? Playing with uh, the mythos. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another great Jimmy Stewart Western with John Ford, uh, uh, Man, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Oh, is, one of my favorite Westerns of all oh, time. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. man. And what is that about except for undermining the mythologies, undermining mm-hmm. the stories that we tell about these Western heroes. It's like, shot a man just for snoring, you know? Yeah. We undermine all of that with stuff like Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is just so shot through with sadness and grief for... Um, a time that we believe that Shane could ride into town and fix things. And I think, yep. you know, we kind of gave that up We in the seventies, this idea of a lone hero. And it, it took a movie actor Reagan to give it back to us in the eighties where you have Rambo fixed and stuff. But um, yeah, as a country, we're going through something where the individual can't save us. There's no, no more individual savior um, coming uh, to clean up this town. And so, uh, yeah, the Western for me is always shot through with melancholy and naked spur Mm-hmm. Man, Ralph Meeker is scary in this movie. You know? Oof. Yeah. Man, it's good. You know, and there's all, all these elements of like the horror film, I think, in, yeah. in this movie as well. Um, and, you know, there's a great, the, the great horror movie with Robert Mitchum, horror western, uh, Blood on the Moon, you know, just about stalking. Yes. But there's like, man, the western is really an agile thing. And like jazz, the, the western is such a uniquely, for me, in my mind, American genre, even with spaghetti westerns, even with whatever, they're all sort of riffs on this American theme yep. of, you know, expansion into, and they're almost like science fiction, right? You're going into an undiscovered country um, yeah. and, it's, and finding aliens there in the form of Native Americans, unfortunately, usually. And uh, yeah, Naked Spur, no, no, no less so, the sort of exploration of, of the dark tea time of the soul, if you will. I mean, I, I can't believe that the major action sequence in this movie is um, trying to recover a corpse. It, it's extraordinarily bleak, you know, mm-hmm. this movie, the way that they handle that. Anyway, yeah. yeah. I'm just monologuing. Yeah. Sorry. No, I think you're so <laughs> right, though. All these genre movies after World War II, they were seen as lesser, and it did take the French to say, no, these are artful. And they're about more than um, your preconceived notions of what these genre uh, limitations are and what they can do. 
uh, kind of like um, that thing about popular films aren't can't be good or whatever. Um, the same argument, man who shot Liberty Balance, my goodness, you know, when the fact becomes legend, you know, print the legend. Print the legend. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I just loved it so well, much. It's so interesting to me that the, the here, I'm going to get political really quick and then I'll jump out of it again. But um, it's really interesting to me that conservatives sort of uh, take Westerns and Ronald Reagan, particularly this cowboy hero in their mind as these monuments to masculinity monuments to whatever gun rights all the stuff that they they've they, they've you know fetishized and for me it's like you watch a western if you actually watch westerns the first thing the sheriff does when he comes to town is he disarms everybody it, it, it's the, the messages that westerns send to us you know the dangers of toxic masculinity like in red river the dangers of arm arming everyone the dangers of you know um, not having strict rules good g- governing discourse and civilization all of these messages in the western have, are just kind of conveniently discarded when mm-hmm. when in, in in favor of gunslingers and this idea that everybody should be armed and safer safer society. opposite opposite the western is a moral genre, yeah. essentially moral genre, you know, and then these Anthony Manns no less so, you know, the war has ruined these people just like war ruined Jimmy Stewart, you yeah. know, and, and, and they're returning from war just like the noir and they're trying to kind of forge a new set of rules for themselves and for the people that they want to protect. Um, and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. And, you know, Naked Spur has this really remarkable moment where Jimmy Stewart cries and mm-hmm. breaks down because he realizes how much of his soul he's parceled out in the pursuit of money. How modern an idea is that? In yeah, the middle of the consumerist 1950s? Yeah. Oh, my God. Everybody's buying cars with fins. Everybody's buying refrigerators. <laughs> this is the 1950s. You know, like yeah. you turn on the TV, it's like Leave it to Beaver and I Love Lucy. And, you know, they're keeping up with the Joneses and stuff. Um, but in this movie, what's breaking him is that he has to make a living. And, and he's decided to do it in a way that exploits other people. Mm-hmm. Um, my God, that's a message for 2021. And, and it is. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, watching Naked Spur, it has its, you know, elements that seem a little stodgy or whatever. But for me, thematically, and, and in Jimmy Stewart's performance particularly, I don't feel like it's aged today. No, not at all. And everything you were talking about, about this happening at the same time as the keeping up with the Joneses or the man in the gray flannel suit, it reminded me of, um, I did a class on Westerns. I actually designed my curriculum for um, film school when I was going to school. And so I purposely did one on the Western. And one of my favorite books I read, and of course, as an author, he I don't always agree with some of his assertions, but he really does make you think about movies in a different way. It's Peter Biskin. And he wrote this great book, uh, Seeing is Believing, How Hollywood Taught Us to Stop Worrying and Love the 50s. Of course, I didn't agree with all of his thoughts on, on certain films, but boy, was it fascinating. And he touched on Westerns and what they were asking us to consider. And I thought, that was a new way of looking at things. So I would encourage people to pick up the book, even if you disagree with some of his stuff. Um, it's a fun read. Yeah. I really like Peter Biskin as a gateway drug for film yeah. criticism. He writes in a really converse, conversational. And, exactly. And, and, yeah. And, you know, he also did like for many of the definitive introduction to 1970s book that. Oh, yeah. 
um, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. I probably have the yep. title messed up. Is that right? I don't know. Anyway, it is right. those two things. Okay, that's right. Yeah. I can remember if it was Raging Bulls first. But he um, has a really great way of setting the table. And I really like seeing his believing as well. He talks about television culture too. And it's like, yes. that's, uh, you know, these are really great places to, to start, you know, when, when you're saying, what are you reading when you're reading this movie? What are you re- what are you taking from it? I all I see is an odor with, you know, the prospector and the outlaw and the uh, yeah. you know, you know. But there's more. There's more. These are archetypes, almost like a passion play, right? No one looks yep. at a passion play and says, "There's oh, nothing to do this." Yeah, <laughs> right. No, but there's really something going on with these archetypes in the in these westerns, and you know, over the course of these films that they did together, uh, 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 Man and Stewart, you really see. The evolution of the Stuart persona, uh, so that you know, in ni- 1954, when he's doing the Far Country with with, with Man, he's also doing uh, Rear Window with yep. uh, w- w- with Hitchcock, leading up to Vertigo, of course, and in 58. So yeah. you know, the, this is Jimmy Stewart post war, and uh, man, these westerns are like. I know that for people who are in the know, whomever those people are, <laughs> they know about these movies. But I think for the broader audience, when we talk about Westerns with people who are just like casual filmgoers, they know about Eastwood. They know a little bit about John Wayne mm-hmm. and John Ford. But when you start talking about Jimmy Stewart's Westerns with um, Anthony Mann, it's a little bit deeper water. It's not deep water yet, but it's slightly yeah. deeper. And it's worth it for people if they haven't picked it out, you know, to go to Warner Archives. Um, and pick out some of these uh, uh, Westerns that he did with man. They're extraordinary and endlessly rewarding. They really are. They're historical documents, not only of the history they're representing, but when they were made. And that's one of my favorite things about it. Yeah. This is well, one of 17 films he did, by the way, with with that horse, Pie. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I love that. had a good relationship with that horse. He tried to buy it from uh, by him from uh, his owner, and she wouldn't sell, you know, but he was in 17 movies with that horse over the course of 20 years. Uh, his horse's name was Pie. You can oh. tell he's a chestnut horse, uh, part Arabian with a little starburst on his forehead. Oh, but um, Stewart has talked somewhere, some interview, he talked about how much he loved oh, that horse. And he tells a story about shooting the far country and uh, the, the trainer wasn't on set and they needed the horse to walk by itself. Um, by himself down the middle of a road, which is hard when they're free, yeah. you know, free walking or whatever. And so he uh, went over to Pi, I guess, as he tells it, and whispered to him and talked to him for a while and uh, really had the horse understand what it was that was expected. And the horse <laughs> nailed it in one shot. So uh, oh. that was the relationship between Jimmy Stewart and Pi. He's a horse whisperer, guys. I mean, he is. you He's can everything. believe that. Yeah. <laughs> He can talk yeah. to invisible rabbits. He can. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah. Well, one of my earlier memories of sneaking out and watching The Tonight Show was watching Jimmy Stewart on it with <gasps> oh, Johnny Carson poem. and reading his poem about his dog and crying cry. and crying. Yes. Um, but yeah. So beautiful. Uh, yeah. Jimmy Stewart. Yes. I'm going to have to link to that poem because it's one of my early memories seeing a rerun or on a video. And I just, oh my goodness. Yeah. It's beautiful. I'm much older than you. I think I saw it live. Yeah. No, just a few years, Walter. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, when I was a freshman in high school and our school newspapers, movie critic, my English teacher's husband was the YA crime novelist, Stephen Schwant, an ex-high school teacher himself, I believe. He loves reading my movie reviews because I was that weird kid who basically wrote for all the adults, or at least 
didn't have maybe the same taste as my peers. And one day he compiled a list of his favorite obscure mystery movies. He thought that I should see if I hadn't already. I had seen most of the titles, films like The Thin Man, The Maltese Falcon, Chinatown, and the du- er, and Double Indemnity. But the one on the list that not only I'd never heard of, but took me forever to track down was the 1973 puzzler, The Last of Sheila, which he called one of the most enviable and perfect mysteries ever written and written by the legendary actor Anthony Perkins and the sadly recently deceased genius Stephen Sondheim. Indeed, it is. Directed by Herbert Ross, the film about a group of people who work in Hollywood who following a shocking hit and run killing at a party one year earlier, reunite exactly a year later for a week of games and psychological mindfuckery aboard a yacht in the south of France stars Richard Benjamin, Diane Cannon, James Coburn, Joan Hackett, James Mason, Ian McShane, and Raquel Welch. Not only one of my favorites of the genre, but one that, like my teacher's husband, Stephen Schwant, I've been endlessly recommending for decades. I've enjoyed discussing with its ardent fans like Ryan Johnson and Dana Delaney, who told me she and her friends dress in togs and watch it annually. I'd love to know when you first discovered it and what you think of The Last of Sheila. I think it was recommended to me by Ryan not that long ago, a few oh, years, okay. I guess. Um, you know, right before Knives Out, because we were t- chatting about. Anyway, it, 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 that's when I think it's fairly recent for me, and it's amazing. And you know, it kind of falls in line. I, I never, I didn't even know about it really until I, he mentioned it. But yeah. it, it falls in with movies for me like Sleuth. The original yes. sleuth and <laughs> and like Death Trap, the Michael Caine, Christopher Reeve, you know the Ira Levin play. Um, the, these obscure, nasty little mm-hmm. 1970s mysteries, where you know mindfuckery is the right right word. Where these two people or three sometimes just go at it. Is Diane Cannon also in Death Trap? I can't remember. I can't but remember I, either. Yeah, but, it's like yeah. it's that kind of movie where it's just very almost unwatchable because of how unpleasant it is but it's so um devious it's so diabolical i think is the word i guess um where it's uh it's it's and and, you know what i love about these movies too is that it's fair that you know there's so many mysteries i feel like that we watch and it's not fair there's a a a clue that you didn't give us it's uh, (laughs) a a, a character that's not been introduced that's the killer yeah there's not it's not really it's just you're, you're just doing something else with these it's really like a parlor game it's like a murder mystery party and you are given clues and you're mm-hmm. given all the information that you really need and i love last of sheila how meticulous it is about solving its crime yeah about the photograph and about the anagram and about the you know the h that doesn't fit but the a would fit so what is a and you know yeah. the idea that the mastermind is actually just the uh uh, uh a lesser mastermind that he's mm-hmm. like petty, but there's someone that's actually aggressively um, unpleasant. I don't know how many spoilers we sh- we we can or should give for something like Class of Sheila, but yeah, man, it's it's really tightly wound, tightly scripted. Um, Sondheim, of course, uh, just a genius. Perkins as well, mm-hmm. a genius, and underestimated, I think, as a creator. I, I love him. 
as a director, you know, uh, of, a couple, of one of the psycho, at least one of the psycho um, 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 sequels. He and Sondheim created this kind of a life's work, a piece of a life's work about alienation and about mm-hmm. sort of an exceptionalism about the people that are alienated, which I really kind of um, jive with. I love this idea that people are seen as different because they're smarter or they're more knowledgeable or they're whatever. And I think, you know, you can trace that through Sondheim and his interesting, you know, his lifetime of, of unpacking and unraveling really interpersonal relationships through his work. And uh, also in Perkins as well, of course, as Norman, uh, this idea of these real complexities in exceptional people. Um, yeah. How that manifests itself sometimes in nasty ways. No, I agree. I thought your point that it's a fair mystery was such a good one because it's so true. So often in these movies, they kind of just pull a thread out of nowhere. Uh, Some character we've never even met or like, oh, but that didn't really happen. Or, oh, it's an unreliable narrator or there's some kind of trickery involved. There really isn't here. I think the original trailer actually told you like even the title is a clue. And so um, I don't want to give too many spoilers for this film because I think seeing it and seeing what happens is half the fun. But it is cool that some of the stuff you see early on um, with places they might be positioned or things that might be happening, uh, little bits of info that kind of sneak out. Sort of like in the movie Clue, when you see which characters get a weapon, which ones get which cards, or do you know what cards they have and who maybe we don't see get a card, that kind of thing. Um, It pays off later, and I love that. I dig these kind of movies, Sleuth and Death Trap. Um, Another one that I showed my movie club, I don't know that it was a huge hit, was uh, The Gazebo from the late 50s, early 60s with Debbie Reynolds. It's another one of these where um, it's kind of like there's a body and it doesn't stay buried or what what happened with this body and who killed it. Um, I kind of dig these sort of like they could be plays, but we're enjoying them as films. And I also love that it's um, made by Sondheim and Perkins, and they actually did stage real life like murder mystery games for their friends for years. And it came right out of this. Uh, Some of the people were involved, like Herbert Ross was actually somebody who played these games. So I love that. You can just tell they're taking such pleasure in mysteries and games. And I'm one of those geeks. So I love it. The gazebo, the one with Glenn Ford. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just the the these movies are you know what's always struck me by the, the movies that the that we we're talking about is really how nasty they are like yep. really nasty like when the you know ultimate you know the in, in, in sleuth there's this like really nasty class issue yes. that's going on it descends into racial epithets and stuff at some point and really brilliant and, and ugly venomously ugly and I love Last of Sheila for that as well um, if you can love something for that but it is so nasty it's like grotesquely nasty what the the killer you know (laughs) if there is a killer um wants and does ultimately to you know to gaslight and to manipulate you know the people that trust them 
And yeah. you know, that's not just one person. It's like several people are doing this. And mm-hmm. and it's all like, you know, oh, and a, and a young Ian McShane as a, as a super heart of throb. When we talk about I Deadwood know or, when yeah. he walks on. Uh, oh, my gosh. When he I'm walks like, on with Raquel Welsh, it's like the right? two most like, beautiful people. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. I was like, that Tom Jones. He was that handsome man. You know, <laughs> uh, the, 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 there, there's so much going on. And Richard Benjamin for a while, it seemed like when I was growing up, he was in everything that I was watching. He was in yeah. like. You know, I loved Love at First Bite, you know, um, the George Hamilton vampire spoof when I was a kid. Oh, I, I haven't that. seen that one. You haven't? Oh, no. my gosh. Okay, well, it's not good, but it's great. You know, it's one of those movies. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a vampire spoof. Um, a Love at First Bite. Um, yeah, and George Hamilton plays, uh, you know, very tan. <laughs> um, of course he does. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, he was also in, uh, like, Westworld. Um, you know, I oh, yeah, that. good you, movie. You know, mm-hmm. He was on a lot of TV, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I just saw him a lot, and it wasn't until later that I figured out that he was also a director and he directed some really interesting stuff, too. Or, um, he did, you know, my favorite year, the Peter O'Toole film. Um, oh, such a good one, Racing with the Moon, which I really love. Love that movie, Denver. isn't yeah. that good? Oh, my it god, it's so good. good. Um, it, you know, and and then weird ones like My Stepmother is an Alien, but he also did Mermaids, you know, the yeah. the, the share movie. So he had a really weird. You know, has a really weird sort of filmography. Um, oh, uh, Trans- Transylvania six five thousand was was that was that uh, him? I can't. Anyway, it's it's stupid to go on like that. But I really like Richard Benjamin because he's he brings this sort of like squirrely, um, wiry intelligence. He's like a Steve Buscemi kind of, right? Yeah. There's, there's, something... there's a. I don't want to like give the spoilers, but there yeah. is a scene where he sort of pops up. That um, it, wow, yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah, the, the, he's got a very specific quality, and I love like yeah. the character actors that are assembled for last of Sheila because each of them bring a specific quality. Diane to, uh, Cannon is so oh, good too. My goodness, she's, she's kind of playing a Sue character. Menger's character, and oh man, yeah, yes. she has a nasty yes, sense of humor. Right. James Mason yes. is playing like everyone's assumption of what a James Mason. You know, uh, character and I am going to spoil something here. They're talking about like. Part of the so game is, is like, yeah, a part of the game is like, you know, someone is like revealing secrets, but not deep secrets, just secrets no. that are just sort of, you know, embarrassing secrets, you know, that you probably wouldn't want your friend to know, but it wouldn't end the friendship kind of secrets. Yeah. James Mason's character's secret is that he's oh a God. child molester. And, and that's not like, oh, ha, 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 you know, it's there's something really weird about fucking that. Fucking twisted. Yeah. It is wrong. <laughs> it is so wrong. And, it just kind of uh, highlights how much things have kind of maybe changed. You know, there's yeah. there, there's a, a movie, uh, Hickey and Boggs, the, the first um, uh, uh, Walter Hill scripted film with uh, um, Robert Culp and Bill Cosby, uh, where the, the bad guy is just openly like a pederast hanging out at a, at a playground watching kids. Mm. And it's like, that's bad. But it yeah. isn't super bad. You know what I mean? Just like in this movie, it's <laughs> According like, to the movie, yeah. Right. It's this movie is like, okay, I'm a shoplifter. Hey, I'm a child molester. Ha ha. It's very really casual. <laughs> weird. It's really weird. And I think it that is. feeds into part of the, uh, you could say, oh, that's dated or whatever. I don't like, for me, it kind of feeds into this sense of. Um, their amorality. Yeah, and they're just a- deluded. Yeah. Absolutely. It's something wrong about this movie from the very beginning i mean the whole group yeah oh my gosh and you start with james coburn who is like oh my god so you know he's the party master right he's like invites everybody to his yacht and 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 i'm like 
he immediately is scary. Creepy. Yes. Isn't he? Yeah. It's like, it's like, hey, this is my best friend, Lee Marvin. And he's inviting us to a, you know, the Osterman weekend with Rucker. You know, there, there's like <laughs> immediately these red flags should be going yeah. off. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you see how all these people in his orbit are attracted to his wealth. Yeah. Attracted to the, you know, idea of a free vacation. Attracted to being Making a invited. movie. Yeah. yeah maybe Making a movie. Being invited to be in the in crowd. And I think mm-hmm. with, with people like Sondheim, with people like Anthony Perkins at this stage in their relative careers, doing a sort of excoriating um, dissection of of Starfuckers is yeah. is on point. You know, I, they would much. know from that, wouldn't they? They, they? they like get that, and all of these characters are in their way loathsome. loathsome they are, characters. yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. And, and then there's Joan Hackett, who's not as well known. As these others who um, really Very has a good. key mm-hmm. role. It's so good in this movie. You know, you talk about richly drawn um, characters. I love her reaction to the game. I love her reaction to some revelations. I think she has a heavy burden to carry in among all these, you know, sharks in the water. I do here. too. I yeah. Think she amazing. And I think with the James Mason secret, um, what's interesting is it makes you suddenly think about her character in a different light. Um, as somebody who might have worked with him when she was younger or knew him um, for years. So there's there's like undercurrents and it also just kind of feeds into the Hollywood um, of today. And, you know, where do you draw lines and who do you work with? Because you need you need money to pay the bills. But where are your ethics? And yeah, there's a lot going on. It seems like just a fun escapist mystery, but uh, it's also raising some issues about the darkness of gossip and um, of just wanting to be a part of this crowd. Like, well, I don't want them talking about me, that kind of thing. Uh, You brought up Richard Benjamin, who did. He made movies like Mermaids and (laughs) Little Nikita, The Money Pit. And then he he did Little Nikita. Yeah, he made some crazy ones in the 90s, like Milk Money and Mrs. Winterborn. But, you know, he had a really good career, kind of old-fashioned sensibility, and uh, he's great in this. He's so good. And there's a lot of, I think, inside baseball in it, too. I mean, you have Mason playing a child monster. Of course, his maybe most famous role outside of Hitchcock is Humbert Humbert, right? Yeah, Lolita. (laughs) Notorious child molester of all time. And, and, you know, you you have that element of it. Diane Cannon is sort of a Hollywood um, um, debutante, dilettante accused variously of marrying in and marrying out of like, uh, yeah, uh, uh, and of course, you know, she was married to Cary Grant in a very exactly. famous sort of abusive relationship. Um, you, you have the uh, uh, closeted homosexual, uh, um, I, you know, of course, Anthony Perkins, and so these, yes, these he even kind of resembles Perkins, he yep. does, yeah, he does, and all of these things are written into it. And the revelation of the homosexuality is full of this kind of sadness, mm-hmm. and it isn't like um um you know lascivious and it's not seen as something gross it's just sort of seen like we were lonesome he was lonesome he wanted yep. to, you know and that's happened and that's what it was and it's like that's perkins that, that's yeah. beautiful that's really beautiful and 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 you know the and then throughout you hear this really pitter-patter dialogue it's really smart stuff especially between benjamin and james mason and an extended scene that they have together Oof. and you can hear sondheim yeah. all over that all yeah. over the sort of attention to language and detail and so, you know, ultimately, it's just like this. I love these late life discoveries, you know, mm-hmm. where I feel like there are movies that I've not only not seen that I will love that out there. There are movies that I've not seen that I will love that I have also not heard of before. 
that's, that's so great, isn't it? I love it's extraordinary. it. Extraordinary. Yeah, One of my favorite things. A very recent favorite for me. I'd say in the last ten years that, yeah. that, that I was introduced to this. But you know, I would program it today in a double bill with Sleuth and uh, and this film. I mean, they're, yeah. they're I think they're cut from the same nasty uh, de- detective cloth, if you will. And, um, I know. Yeah. yeah, and I should disclose that Walter is part of my game night circle of friends. So it seems like if we were having this big game night uh, film festival or game film festival, man, did we just program like the hell out of some good nights of uh, gameplay? I love this. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm not sure people want to play games with you anymore if you program these movies. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're like, what kind of games? Wait do you a minute. Play? Yeah. But you know, I mean, I would even add to that from movie stuff trivia. Like, yeah. Like, like, like Clue. You're yeah. right. It's great for that. But I also Ooh, love Murder by Death. You know, sort of that oh, spoof, yeah. of, spoof of all of the major detectives and stuff. You know, th- there's something that's missing. And I think, you know, Ryan really tapped into that when he did Knives Out, that there's still a hunger for, for sleuth films, for mm-hmm. movies about, you know, a set of characters and who did what and the, the twist and the surprise hero and the surprise villain. And, you know, there's a thirst for it. You know, it's a big industry. It's... Um, I love, you know, uh, closed room mysteries. I, I love this stuff. And I don't feel like we see as much as we used to, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking of also like No Way Out, which is. Ooh, yeah, the know, joy is in figuring it out. Yes. I love that film so much. Yes. It's so good. It's so yes. good. And it's a movie that's so rare and so fond in my memory now because it's it's an adult film. Um, and I don't mean I don't porn, make those but I mean, anymore. Yeah. yeah, I know, but there's sex in it and it's not based on an IP and it's about, you know, who do you trust? And it's, it's, yeah. you know, we talked about Jimmy Stewart, right. As an all American, but who's not, who's more all American than Kevin Costner in the roles yeah. in the eighties and nineties. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, stuff like no way out where it's like mind blown, you know, yes. all the I clues are there. Yeah. there it is. <laughs> and of course that's the moment that Will Patton becomes, uh, one of our premier character actors that movie yeah, too. Yeah, you know, it's such a good, is so good. Oh man, oh. Hackman. Yeah. yeah, and Sean Young, poor Sean Young, Sean Young. deserved better. Yeah, is great in it too. You know, there, there's like I, I love these mysteries too because they are playgrounds for character actors, and that's mm-hmm. something that's common between Naked Spurs and Master Sheila. It's like you look in the periphery around the movie stars, and you see these amazing faces and these amazing stories that these faces are telling. I mean, Ian McShane gets a big moment in this movie as well. And it's like, yes, he's so good. He's mm-hmm. so good. And, you know, really I can't good. quite see swear engine in it, but I see, you know, that I, uh, I, I obviously liked him long before Deadwood and I didn't even know it, you know? And so there's, yeah. A, yeah. And again, I love how this movie gives you exactly what you need to know, like his big moment. Then you think back of his introduction and like the first yes. sequence we see, it's like, oh, it was all there the whole time. I love it. It was yeah. all there, you know, and yes. I, you know, this, this is really fresh in my mind because I, I just talked with some other people about Power of the Dogs and Eugene Campion. But that's another film that is not really a mystery, but it does have kind of an interesting crime twist to it at the end of it, you know, not to give too much away. But it's also like these movies really, really prescripted. It's like the opening five minutes of Power of the Dog, and you won't know that the first time you're watching it. But you, the more times you watch it, you realize everything that you need to know about the rest of the film, including its thesis statement is stated within the first five minutes of that movie. Same with last of Sheila. I love being in the hands of people who know what the hell they're doing, you know, and And, respect your intelligence. And again, that's Sondheim. I think, you know, when we're Mm -hmm. talking Sondheim who really respects, you know, he, 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 uh, 
he learned at the feet of Oscar uh, of Oscar Hammerstein. I mean, the best mm-hmm. he understood about how to tell a story through character and action, which is what the musical is, right? And 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 yep. and he the meticulousness of the script is like the 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 real tragedy is we didn't get more Sondheim written yeah. films. Um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, it, it's yeah. uh, it, it, it's, it's a good it's one. A, it's a clockwork. Um, this yes. one, a nasty little clockwork, a nasty piece of work. Nasty, last piece, shot. <laughs> nasty piece of clockwork. You can go with it that. Is. I love that. Well, and the last shot of it is such a 70 shot. Yeah. It's and like, then the song that comes up. Oh, oh my gosh. Perfect. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of the ending of uh Night Moves when you mentioned Hackman, where oh, it's just him lying at the bottom, the private detective lying in the bottom of his boat, and the boat's going around in a circle around and around yeah. and around the middle of the ocean. Um, there's so many endings in 1970s films where the detective, you know, the lone hero. The more they know, the less they know. And, yep. you know, like Parallax View, the more that you know, the less you actually know, you know, how it's that Tiresias line from Oedipus Rex where he says how terrible is knowledge when it brings no profit to the wise. And that's yeah. all of the 70s. You know, the more that we learned about Watergate, the more that we learned about how broken our institutions were, civil rights, the yeah, you know, that- assassinations, the less that we actually are secure, the less yes. safe we are, the more we know. Clute is another main, major example of that. And that question right yeah of like what do we do with that yes yeah i mean i i i don't want to know anymore <laughs> i'm done with that yeah. i don't want to know anymore I, you know all these revelations every week you know this person knew this from all along this person knew i know yeah i know but until you do something about it maybe you can just stop telling me about it you know yeah um, that's so true it's uh, it's just so terrible yeah but herbert ross by the way the director of this one of my also, faves. Yeah. Yeah. Also really weird career, you know, but my, 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 my favorite movie that he did, and there's a lot, a lot, lot to choose from, but my, my favorite movie of his is pennies from heaven. Ah. Um, and, and it was, it's based on a play by Dennis Potter. It's a musical. I mm-hmm. love Dennis Potter. He's the guy I, I know that, you know, um, who did singing detective and dream. Yes. And um, uh, pennies from, have you seen pennies from heaven? I have, but I saw it when I was a kid. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I need to first, first, I will say that uh, there's like a 10 minute musical number um, of, of anything goes the Cole Porter song with Christopher Walken doing a tap dance on a pool table <laughs> out of this world. Uh, I've Steve seen Martin, that clip Bernadette over Peters. the years. Oh, my yes. God. Out mm-hmm. of this world. Steve Martin, Bernadette Peters, Jessica Herper, oh. uh, dark, bleak, beautiful film. Steve Martin really could have been uh, one of the great serious actors of our time. And uh, yeah. Pennies from Heaven is an all-time classic, I think, from 1981. Um, but, you know, he also did, like, The Goodbye Girl. And That's my favorite. That well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good, goodbye, Mr. Chips, I think, was his earliest one. He's done yeah. so much stuff. but I know. He made, like, Footloose, uh, Footloose. My Blue Heaven, which is another Steve Martin. <laughs> I, I love, love that My Blue movie. Heaven. Yeah. yeah. Boys uh, on the Sides, Steel Magnolias. Steel Magnolias. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Which I despise. You know? Yeah. Please send your hate. Oh, really? I hate that movie so much. Oh. But I, I, I don't know why. I'm just grouchy. Maybe I'll like it more now. Um, Protocol. Like, he made. So irritated by this movie. Which, uh, which was annoying too, I have to say. Secret Protocol? of My Success. Oh, yeah. The then, Michael J. Fox movie. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. He's had a weird career too. But yeah. there's so much talent and so much, you know. He knows funny. Yeah. He does. He yep. does. And. You know, after I've said how venomous and dark and disgusting it is, it's actually really quite funny, too. I mean, there's a lot of really kind of uh, good gags in it. Um, Yeah. But yeah. 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 
classic. Yeah. All of these people, one of the things they have in common, they definitely know how to work as an ensemble. Yes. And you see that with Ross's movies and Benjamin's movies and Sondheim, of course. And yeah. Yeah, yep. definitely. And collaboration. You know, even, even going yeah. back to Anthony Mann, you see this, this real, you know, reliance on collaborators. You yeah. know, and you know, more 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 important for Mann because he was working on a shoestring. But um, yeah, it's like I, I like movies where you look around and you see a world that seems legible. Yeah. Um, and that's what character actors can do. Uh, absolutely yeah these are both great movies and walter i learned even more about them i love them so much and this was such a wonderful conversation so i really appreciate this same i'll always answer when you call so thanks for having me anytime and joining me next is the kind witty wildly gifted crime writer behind the books all things violent love and other criminal behavior and with a piece in this year's prestigious Best American Mystery and Suspense Stories Anthology, it is my good friend, Nikki Dolson. Nikki, thank you for coming back to hang out and talk movies with me. It's always such a pleasure. How are you doing? I am great. And thank you for having me. Always, always a pleasure to talk to you. Yes. So the new anthology just came out this fall. What was that like? Tell me all about it insanity just you know it it has always been uh, a bucket list thing the, yeah. the bams a, as we call it in the business no i'm kidding um but the bams, <laughs> the bams you know, yeah yes best american is just um i feel like it's it's pinnacle for for crime writers anyway mm-hmm. um i mean i don't i mean I, i'm not writing novels yet um really wrote a novelish um, thing yeah i wrote a novelish yes. thing yes yes but you know i mean but you know there's those book awards that are out so you know the the edgars and the, the you know yes. the agathas and all of that but i think for short stories um before you get there for the those kinds of awards you get into bams and yeah. it's just a huge thing for me to have have made it in there um, I got distinguished uh, story a few years back, which was also Woo-hoo. great. Um, but uh, truly, getting in there um, with so many excellent writers this year has just—it's really just a highlight, a highlight, you know, lifelong highlight for me. It will be. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so well deserved. You're such a good writer, and it was so cool to see. Yeah, among your peers, and also Alifair Burke and Steph Chaw were the editors. So it was just mm-hmm. a cool, exciting year. Yeah. Yes, very yes. much. So. Um, I'm I'm uh, eager to see what Steph Chow does in the years coming. Um, you know, she's gonna be a longtime editor, yeah. and um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how. Uh, the changing face of our crime writing community is reflected in those pages. Yeah. Oh, can't wait. Mm-hmm. Well, Nikki, for those listening who might not know or remember, she is a great film lover. In the past, she's joined me to tackle heist movies and season one and Westerns this season. And we're still brainstorming for our next topic. But today she's here to talk about a film that's completely new to her, I believe. And yes. one just released on crisp, vivid, new Warner Archive Blu-ray. It is Nicholas Ray's oft-forgotten, overlooked, and unusual 
1958 film noir Party Girl, shot in Cinemascope, the movie which stars Sid Charisse, Robert Taylor, and Lee J. Cobb, marked the end of an era for a lot of reasons. Obviously, it's one of the last film noirs given its release year. It's the last film that Sid Charisse made for MGM and the second to the last movie that Robert Taylor did for the studio as well as they were the last two stars MGM had under contract. Get that one through your head. That's crazy. A Chicago set gangster prohibition era film about a successful disabled defense lawyer played by Taylor, who's made his name getting his powerful friends like mobster Lee J. Cobb out of legal jeopardy. At the start of the movie, Taylor falls for the jaded showgirl played by Cherise at a party and she becomes his mistress. Featuring Ray's great expressionistic use of luridly bright color or metro color here because it is MGM, including his noted love of the color red. This is a beautiful oddball crime tale I really enjoy, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Oh, oddball is the right word for it. odd, yes. In in really the best way. Like like you said, I've never seen it before. Um, but, uh, if I, you know, I went into it, like not even, I knew the basic plot, Okay. So, you know, what was that? And so I'm like, okay, we're going to do this. And, <laughs> and it was just so unexpected. Yeah. Also. Um, but you truly just like everything I feel like from that era, beautiful to look at. Yeah. Just, just from the costumes, the, the, the. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, it's that guys and dolls feel. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I I love guys and dolls. I'm a big fan of guys and dolls. Um, But and there was just uh, uh, later on in the movie when you get uh, Cookie shows up in the pinstripe suit, like yes, something out of Dick Tracy, basically. Yes. And I'm like, okay, this just like he he absolutely goes that next level, and I'm like. Did we have to go there? Did we really? Okay, we're going to find it. We're there now. Yep. Okay. And it keeps it right up. Like I, I, you know, all all the stars for for just ratcheting up the drama in this thing that it's so dramatic from the jump. Oh, really. he loves drama. Like my goodness, <laughs> yes. I don't know how many of his other movies you've seen, but. Uh, he is unafraid to like push it to 11 bigger than life was the um, movie about like prednisone. So it was made in that era. And he's like, he becomes bigger than life. The dad gets addicted to steroids and goes like nuts. And um, there's also, of course, you know, you're tearing me apart rebel without a cause. And just that whole um, persona, he just, he loves drama. He loves actors. And I feel like this is a really good, movie for acting and yeah he really does he goes there so it is if you're going in thinking you're getting an understated movie this is not your movie no absolutely (laughs) not absolutely not um once you get past the you know that initial opening which is you know I live in Vegas so so you know the showgirl opening (laughs) very familiar to me and they're you know they're coming out and Miss Consuela and, you know, like, you know, basically just gold glitter and, you know, some, you know, marabou fur cuffs to like prance around. It's my neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. You know, totally. You know, really all they need is a headdress and 
you know, that's it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was like, that's very much, it, it made me laugh because I'm like, okay, this is Chicago, also a place I am from. So that's right. Yeah. And I lived there a little bit. And so, yeah, it's just funny. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like the, 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 the bringing together of both of these worlds was a little bit of like, oh, okay, this is how we're doing it. But, um, you know, that opening where you see that you're like, okay, something like this is going to roll into something more. And what it rolls into is just basically, I don't, you know, like the, the, what is it like? the the dog show you know when they bring out the dogs and they prance them around and everybody <laughs> see and then like the guy's there with his notebook judging them he's like how about that girl that, yep. that, that, that oh yeah her we want her and you want that yeah. girl and he's like it's she's so- expensive she's expensive I don't know and he's like it's a party for Rico. We're going to do this. I know it's so unromantic and just <laughs> blunt about it. It's like, nope, these girls are coming. We have to pay for them. Like essentially these are high priced escorts, basically. I mean, that's what party the girls. expectation yeah. would be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, Ray wasn't a musical guy. He didn't get to uh, direct the musical sequences Joe Pasternak uh, at MGM, you know, the man who is the producer and responsible for all those like MGM Easter Parade and Summerstock and all the Judy Garlands in these movies. Okay, that's yeah. Okay. Yeah, like he was um, very much like we have our house director for Sid Charisse's musical numbers. So those scenes don't really marry really with the rest of the, they're kind of like the Where's Waldo and then the rest of it is the main. is very gritty and stuff like that. So it's a little bit of a strange jump. And so I could see that you're like, did Jen recommend a musical here? Like what's going on? And then all of a sudden they're talking about like throwing acid in somebody's face and like, you know, taking out the di- the disabled lawyer's hip and you're like, well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. so like, um, yeah, just, <laughs> blunt, and like you said yeah blunt is really the thing oddball and blunt and just yeah neon just swings yeah <laughs> big swings I mean and and you were talking about the color so when you get to the party with Vicky who like you said is jaded you know you mm-hmm. get that whole conversation with one of the other girls and she's like honey I've been there you don't know you just got to listen to me and trust me you you don't let these men these men you don't let them get to get, get under your skin you I know, know you take what you have, they offer and you move on you don't make it personal yeah I, I was right down I'm like Vicky knows what's up yes she does yes, she does and like what a shock it is then when you see like her spoiler everybody but you see yes. um this dear her roommate was it I believe yes Um, yes. took her own life at the beginning he's off screen but it's like whoa yeah Yeah. so uh, this culture where they're sort of um, chewing up these people and throwing them away these women and also just anybody they can use like the lawyer who is not above when we first meet him very hilariously um, he's kind of like a Michael Cohen or one of those Mm -hmm. lawyers where He's not above sort of using his own self or people's prejudice. Uh, He is disabled. He walks with a limp. And so in court, he like plays that up to try to get the sympathy of the jury. And it made me laugh. It kind of reminded me of that 
um, scene in this really good movie called A Very Long Engagement with Audrey Tateau, where she played a girl with polio. And I think she was trying to get somebody to help her. I believe it was a scene in a library. And she like came in and she was, she was fine. And then all of a sudden he wasn't helping her. And she started to like, you know, play it up a little more. And then all of a sudden she got what she wanted. So, you know, figuring out how to manipulate a little. Mm -hmm. And I like that um, Sid Therese's character kind of called him out on that, that lack of pride a little bit. Yes. Yeah. So I thought that was good. Yeah. Robert Taylor. Yeah. Okay. Can we talk about the scene at the party though? Cause you get the full gamut of the room and you know, she has, Centuries has her moment where she takes off the fur and I'm like the dress, the dress. It's just, is it like on my screen, it was orange, but it's that orangish red. Yeah. In the room. Like she's the thing that's burning brightest in that room. You bet. Um, yeah. yeah. That's and very she, much his thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she, she owned that room. Like every time she passed, everybody looked at her and yep. then she walks up to uh, Robert Farrell's character. And she's like, you want to take me home? <laughs> I I like, know. It is so <laughs> funny. Yeah. She just passes everybody and she's like, nope, that's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. To be so fair, his, the first time you see him is just like the top of his head or the back of his head. Yeah. You don't see him. And then he turns around and I'm like, well, no wonder she doesn't want to talk to anybody else. How could you look at him? Yeah. Robert Taylor. So handsome. He started out, he'd been an MGM star. I think it was for like 25 years at that point. Mm -hmm. It was his second of the last movie, but yeah, he started out as kind of like the vapid pretty boy in Greta Garbo movies. Like that was his thing in the early thirties. And then he, he started to get like parts with meat on them, but Mm -hmm. yeah, he was very much like the romantic um lead and so yeah it's just it's such a good scene the color of the dress is perfect he loves red I think it's here it's kind of like a burnt red yes um in you know Johnny Guitar and in uh Rebel Without a Cause red he uses as danger Mm -hmm. um the color he talks about the most with um this film Nicholas Ray is the green which I didn't notice the first time around, but he said that he uses green a lot to punctuate jealousy. Okay. And so then like the second time I watched it, I was suddenly paying attention to that because it's always the red and the black and the, um, you know, the white, black, white, and red basically Mm -hmm. are the ones drawing you in. It's a newspaper. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, the green. Yep. Canetto. Canetto is wearing the green suit when you meet him in that. Oh, good point. Yep. You know, the one handing out the the hundred dollars to get all the girls to stay. Yeah. Um, He's in the green. Uh, um, And that's who Farrell is defending in that. So he's like, you know. Yes. Yeah. He's a piece of work. That guy's up for murder or something like that. He gets him off. Spoiler. Sorry. I know. (laughs) And he's the one with the Greta Garbo scene where, uh, was it Rico where he shoots the picture? Oh, yes. 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 Oh my God. Yeah. He had a crush, which is hilarious because it's, you know, Robert Taylor played opposite her a lot, but yeah. for the era, he's like desperately in love with uh, Greta Garbo who he's seen on the movie screen and, you know, she got married. And uh, so he shoots. He feels betrayed. <laughs> yes, he, yes. yes. He's so betrayed by it. And it's crazy. And I'm like crazy stalker, stalker drama is what. Yeah, very stalkery. Yes. 
And I'm like, is he going to change his affections to her? Like, I was like, yeah, you you weren't sure where that was going. Yeah. 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 Um, So speaking of that, like, Kaneto is always the one who's after Vicky, the one in the Mm -hmm. red dress, Vicky. Um, she beats him with a hairbrush later on in the movie though. Yes. And I laughed and like, I've had to pause it and chuckle over that whole thing. Cause, I, Cause he's like, yeah, baby, you, I'll protect you. And she's like, yes. great for the information. Wham! Wham! Yes. <laughs> so good. I was like, you know, uh, Megan Abbott, who's a mutual friend. Um, she has made some jokes in interviews about she collects knickknacks. Mm-hmm. She was saying like, you know, for a single woman, it's good to have around the house, like things you could use as weapons. And when you watch party girl, you're like, okay, I guess I don't need like a single or a knickknack here. I can use my hairbrush. Oh my God. Yeah. But like hairbrushes back then though, were heavy. Were really heavy. heavy. They weren't like the goody plastic things that we buy for $3. No, no, no. I mean, you can, yes, the hardwood handle on that. I'm sorry. Um, even as a child of the seventies, I'm sorry, my, my bottom has been paddled once or twice with a good hairbrush. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, well, not a hairbrush, but, but I was from the era of spanking. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Yes. Sit and be to your, hold still. Let yeah. me break your hair. You know, and <laughs> that's how that came in. But I'm just saying like, yeah. that was no joke. This is not a plastic hairbrush. He was hurt. No. Yeah, this is not from the drugstore. It's not going to break two minutes later. So no. Therese is going to do some damage. Yes. Yep. <laughs> she ran his ass off, too. She did. Oh, I love Sid Therese, especially like in Singing in the Rain. And um, she has one of my favorite quotes where she was talking about um, her husband at the time was Tony Martin. There was this joke about like she was frequently paired. She's very tall and she was frequently mm-hmm. paired, of course, extraordinary dancer with Fred Astaire and Gene mm-hmm. Kelly. And she mm-hmm. said, Tony would always know instinctively like who I was dancing with that week because mm-hmm. I would come home and I'd be like sore but smiley. And that was Fred because he's very elegant. And I'd come home and I'd be like black and blue. And I'm still happy, but like black and blue because Gene Kelly makes you go through it so many times. And it's oh. like, oh, it's Gene this week. It's Fred this week. And oh, she's wow. such a lucky, um, just gifted woman to dance yeah. with our greatest dancers. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was gorgeous. So I like those scenes yeah. were not hard to see. Like I, I can see why they took the time to make her front and center and what two or three, you know, but Citrice, great. Yes. Yes. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> for, for just general noir structure, it hits on all the points though. So kudos for that. I mean, as oddball as it feels, yeah. it's still hitting those major plot points. I mean, you get, you know, your setup, which in this case is really just the fact that um, Robert Farrell's character, character, uh, no, yeah, Tommy wants out. Tommy yeah, wants Tommy out. Farrell. Yeah, Tommy Farrell. There we go. Tommy wants out, um, mm-hmm. and so that's 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 what's going to be the thing. Yeah, and you're like, okay, ob- you see him, and he he's obviously into her, but he's pushing her away, and you're like, okay, something weird's going on, and then you find yeah. out he's married. Um, but that doesn't that have- was a twist yes yeah yeah but then when like he goes to, so he's got like this horrible in- injury from when he was a kid yeah you get that story 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, which only like draws her in more yeah, uh, and solidifies <laughs> their relationship in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he like takes off for a year. I'm like, what is this movie doing? <laughs> yeah, he goes to have the surgery. And yeah, because I think the in the film, he'd had a surgery when he was little and it didn't go well, which I know what that's like, like, um, you know, they did something wrong or there's new technologies. Surgeries yeah. are always getting changed. And so he can finally get it. And so he goes, he doesn't want her around. And then it's like, I don't want you there. And then he does. It, it's strange. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like he takes off for a year and she's yeah. like, okay, it's fine. I mean, she's heartbroken, but also she's still lingering. Yeah. So then, you know, the next major, like, you know, character moment for her is when the wife shows up in like her room in her, her dressing room. And you know you get the 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 honey. I'm his wife, and honey, not <gasps> no, sorry. you're not. Not only yeah. a name or whatever, you know. Yeah, it's like that up. bitch. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's a very he's my man. It's it's Karen yeah. and Goodfellas. Get your own damn man. But in this case, mm-hmm. we're on Sid's side. Like, yes. yeah, you're married to him, but that's that's his woman. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's all about money for her. Yeah. Uh, it's clear, obviously, because of all the years he hasn't seen her, but also the second he's in trouble, she's divorcing him finally. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's, yeah. Oh, I guess the money in the so jewelry. She sucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't like her. Does she even have a name in it? That's a good question. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I guess Mrs. Farrell. Genevieve. She's Genevieve. Genevieve, played by Claire Kelly. Yeah. Yes. Genevieve, yes. And, and how also, good was I thought Corey Allen? I mean, Lee J. Cobb kind of steals yes, the movie. Yes. But uh Corey Allen as Cookie Lamont, like he was freaky. <laughs> Cookie Lamont. Yes. Yeah. But he also felt like he was straight out of guys and dolls. Like, is this is not a little bit like is he yeah. gonna start um flipping a coin or mm-hmm. yeah, being like Scarface or draft or something? Yeah. Yes, it's like the dance scenes and Cookie Lamont look like maybe they were part of the same movie. That's a good point. Yeah. Yes. So like there's this through line of this very hardcore uh noir. Yeah. I gotta get out, you know, and I'm representing these bad guys. And, and at the edges of it is this, you know, musical and mm-hmm. you know, comical bad guys. You know, yeah. he's a punk, but I'm you know, I'm <laughs> an adult now, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> this is just but okay, fine. Like, but like, yeah, he takes yeah. out for a year in the middle of it. And mm-hmm. you get like the montage, the vacation montage, and they're falling in love and it's solidifying and whatever. So then at the end, um, uh, he ha- when he gets picked up by the police, they can threaten her with acid. Not just killing her. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. She live. She's just yep. going to be disfigured forever. And I'm like, what is this movie? <laughs> what did Jen recommend now no yeah it's really crazy I looked up the screenwriter while we were talking and it's George Wells who Hmm. weirdly has the strangest career like he basically wrote all those MGM musicals like they just kind of assigned him this I guess um like he did take me out to the ball game summer stock like a bunch of the musicals uh, I love Melvin. Designing yeah. Woman is not a musical, but it is very funny. I love that movie of Gregory Peck and Lauren Bacall. It's, mm-hmm. it's funny. Um, after this, he did write uh, The Gazebo, which I love. 
um, the okay. gazebo is one that I just introduced to my movie club. I don't think it went over like very amazingly because okay. <laughs> there were a couple musical numbers uh, with <laughs> Debbie Reynolds. And um, so when okay. I first talked to them, Jed was like, at first I was like, what is this movie? Um, but, you know, it's kind of like Death Trap or... Mm-hmm. um the last of sheila or sleuth it kind of, it was a play and it's a mystery like a dark comedy so the gazebo is really good so we did have some um felicity with crime i should say but mostly the guy wrote musicals there's another one he did called penelope hmm. which has uh nikki and my boyfriend peter falk um hey. and also natalie wood who i love right. and uh the movie is another one where it's like the strangest thing you've ever seen it starts out and natalie wood is wearing a disguise and she goes into a bank and starts robbing it it's her husband's bank because he's uh-huh. not paying attention to her so she's like i'm gonna rob the bank and you're like i love that <laughs> and then then it becomes like a spoof and like there's comedy scenes and, and it's like takes another left turn but all the crime stuff, you're like, if they had, you should maybe watch it actually, because okay. it, for uh, a crime writer such as yourself, you might be able to take those elements of, you know, robbing your husband's bank and stuff like that and take it and turn it into something really cool. But yeah, Penelope. So George Wells, I guess what we're saying is good uh, musical writer. And when he did crime, he, he, he took some chances. <laughs> yes, he <laughs> did. I love yes. that idea, yeah. though. So, yeah, yeah. I will check that out. That's very okay. good. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, it's a strange movie. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah. Anyway, I will check that one out, though. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I like Party Girl. It is not okay. that. Great. It is odd, but it yes. is definitely one that I would watch again because, you know, Citrice uh, uh, and uh, uh, Robert Farrell, they're great to watch. Lee J. Cobb is great. And yeah, he, uh, his character is a little, I feel disjointed. A little, a little bit. Little. Yeah. I was kind of waiting for him to have more, like to come out and really, uh, yeah. I feel like maybe the cookie character kind of stepped mm-hmm. in on him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they should have just made that Rico straight up, but I did like how it came full circle with Rico at the end. Even though yeah. he's one of those guys who speaks in third person, I think we've all met those characters and in, in life, and yeah. you're just like, okay, it's a choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess they only had so much time because I mean, it's like what? Yeah, yeah, movie, that's so, true. I mean, yeah, it's it's yeah. He reminds you of his character's name by speaking in third person. Yeah, it's very helpful. Yeah. The cookie, the cookie says. Yeah. 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 Listen to Rico. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh wow. my gosh. But yeah, no, it's a fun one. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Were yeah. there any other observations you made that you want to be sure to point out to people? The classic, I'm gonna do away with one of my compatriots because he's done me wrong party scene. <laughs> yes, you know yeah. the ultimate retirement. You know, yeah. 
I'm glad everybody could come. We're going to talk to our guy <laughs> Fausto or Gusto, whatever they call him in this movie. I don't remember. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're like, he's been a good guy. He's been great. Yes. <laughs> Except for this part where he tried to undermine me. And now we're going to beat him with the trophy I bought him as a goodbye. Wow. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's like something I love in gangster movies where yes. you're like, wait. <laughs> for Robert De Niro to watch that and go I want to do that yes. yeah yeah like I give mean, a great speech you're being very gregarious and then all of a sudden oh there is that scene in Untouchables where he's you know and then all of a sudden he takes a baseball bat yes yeah okay. you, you might have watched this watched movie it. okay I haven't watched Untouchables in forever so I'm like, oh I love that one yeah a little yeah. too much but yes <laughs> Oh, There's God. never enough Bobby. I'm with you on this. We All are right. We are yes. to go that way. <laughs> yeah, we are. Nikki and I have the same taste a little bit. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, if you God. follow us on Twitter, you'll get the Peter Dink- Dinklage love fest that recently happened. So. Yes, it did. Oh my God. I, I had to okay. send your um image you made yesterday, <laughs> which is like was it Rocky and yes, um, Apollo yeah. Creed? The the you know the the fist moment where they hold you know they, they're, they're like yeah hands. they're holding hands for a moment. And yeah. It was like Nikki and Jen bonded by our love of Peter Dinklage. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Uh, well, Nikki, this is so great. I want to thank you for watching the movie and uh, getting a kick out of it. I love listening to your observations. This was wonderful. This thank is the, as always the best fun to talk movies with you. Yes, anytime you're welcome back. <laughs> Thanks. Next up, we have two French movies, two new releases to Blu ray from Cohen Media Group. I believe both are also available on the Cohen Films Amazon Prime video channel that you can subscribe to as well. I'm not very familiar with the service, but I did see like a headline on uh, the New York Times streaming that a couple of the movies that I'm talking about and that I have reviewed for Cohen in the past are now available on the channel. So I would say look there. You could also probably rent these movies on various services, but they are available on Blu-ray as well. Only one of them, however, I am going to recommend. So both deal with female sexual jealousy and how that manifests. And one does it successfully. Both are very, very subversive. And the two films are Who You Think I Am, a film by, and I please, I apologize if I'm saying his name incorrectly. It's an actor turned director. Uh, He also wrote the picture Safi Naboo, I believe. I could be totally wrong. I apologize. And the second film is White as Snow from Anne Fontaine. Anne Fontaine herself is also an actor turned uh, writer-director in her own right. And this one she co-wrote, though. White as Snow is a retelling of the Snow White 
uh, storyline. Essentially, it stars Isabelle Huppert, who is one of my all-time favorite actresses. She doesn't really have much to work with here. The film itself is a big old mess. Matt Zollerzeitz, a colleague over at RogerEber.com, reviewed this movie, and he did kind of compare it to porn, essentially. It is sort of a porn version of Snow White, but you know, like I would say art porn or highbrow porn, uh, the art house type, not like uh, that you're going to, I'm assuming, find on various websites. This is not uh, a medium I know anything about, really. But it does give up sort of that vibe. There are uh, sex scenes in movies, and I'm down with that. There are very few, even though we talk about them all the time. My goodness, it's so weird when we're living in such a puritanical time as now that sex scenes are the debate of so much online chatter, especially on Twitter, it seems like everybody uh, handing out speeding tickets, as my friend Jordan Harper likes to say, on everything. And uh, it seems like sex scene uh, Twitter is always on the case. Um, they would be handing out a ton of tickets on White as Snow. Unfortunately, these scenes uh, don't really do anything. The film itself deals with Huppert's character, who is a very... Um, jealous a beautiful woman getting older and she's the evil stepmother of this gorgeous younger woman uh Lou Lalage uh I'm guessing Lulage from The Innocence which was another Anne Fontaine picture has her like kidnapped and attempted to be killed in the woods but then um you know a woodsman saves her sort of like again Snow White just as the title alludes and then essentially, instead of the seven dwarves sort of just helping her, uh, these men help her too, but they help her basically have sex with tons of guys. I guess uh, being sexually liberated is her adventure, and that's wonderful, but there's really nothing to it. And it's a weird message for the filmmaker to kind of make like, you know, sex is for younger women, essentially. And, you know, uh, Isabel Huppert, you know, is jealous of that or essentially uh, sends her on her path to die. But then she discovers that to be liberated, uh, I guess, is to just have sex with everyone. And, you know, there's some great aspects to these ideas of women being sexually liberated and uh, acting out on their desires and having self-agency. And I'm all in favor of that. But this movie just kind of treats it as a fuck fest, essentially, to use another phrase that I remember one of my professors uh, doling out in the uh, scene where we go from one love scene to another to another, all happening simultaneously and Antonia's line and people were getting like uncomfortable in his chairs and he's like you're probably wondering when you came to class today if you were going to watch a fuck fest yes um but yeah so that is essentially white as snow it is not a film I would highly recommend at all I wouldn't recommend it uh, period really it is a misfire and Fontaine is a good filmmaker she's made some great ones in the past. There are a few I still really need to see, like her version of Gemma Bovary and The Innocence, which has gotten a lot of acclaim. 
I saw Coco before Chanel with Audrey Tateau, which was excellent. She also made one called The Girl from Monaco that I highly recommend. It is like a noir or a neo-noir. I think I was alone in liking it. I remember liking it quite a bit back in 2008, but I haven't seen it since. I don't know if my tastes have changed. So maybe don't like hold me to, oh my God, what did you you know tell us to see? But I do remember being impressed with it at the time quite a bit. Uh, so Anne Fontaine, this is not her greatest film. I would not uh, recommend this one. Oh, she also made Adore, which is another very strange film. I just uh, recalled that with Naomi Watts and Robin Wright, where a pair of childhood friends and neighbors fall for each other's sons. There was a film like that in the 80s, but it was about men, I think, falling for their uh, friends' daughters. It was very bizarre. Um, this one was provocative, and um, obviously this is recurring throughout her films, um, sexual liberation and what that means. And I think sometimes she has something to say, and then sometimes it, she does not. Adore, I remember not being overly pumped on that one either, but I do think I liked it uh, much more than White as Snow, which was basically not at all. However, Who You Think I Am is really worth watching. My goodness. This film stars another one of my favorite French actresses, Julia Binoche. My goodness, one of the greatest, really. She is playing a professor in this film. Um, she's, you know, middle-aged as well. She is divorced, shares custody of her kids with her ex, uh, at the start of the film, she carries on like a casual affair with this emotionally distant, much younger man. And I mean, Julia Binoche is gorgeous, but basically you think that's sort of the couple steps beyond friends with benefits, but kind of friends with benefits. Uh, they have this weird falling out where I think she invites him over or to like hang out and he sort of laughs in her face basically, or I saw this a few weeks ago, but essentially tells her like, what do you expect? Your kids are my age or uh, when they're much younger, but you know, you know where to hurt somebody. And that's exactly what he does. Um, she is, I'm going to guess like fifties uh, around there or late 40s, early 50s, and the guy she was involved with was, you know, mid to late 20s, early 30s, essentially. Um, after he hurts her and they sort of go their separate ways, she does that really healthy thing that I think a lot of people can relate to where they sort of get obsessive and uh, cyber stalk them. Um, mostly when you're first breaking up with someone or you're mad at someone, you're sort of, uh, taking a perverse, like, you know, well, I wonder if they've moved on yet where you look into their profile. Hopefully you're not sitting there all day and night, you know, pouring over it, but she is, and she figures out that what she wants to do to sort of get more information is she creates a fake profile on Facebook, uh, Clara is the name that she uses and she you know puts some provocative photos and uses the, like the language of her students and her kids and uh she creates this whole persona and then befriends one of her exes uh her his roommate 
who is um, very adorable and adoring and someone who immediately is curious. He's a photographer about Clara, her 24-year-old doppelganger online. And they start having an emotional affair essentially on the web where they're talking day and night on um, DM. They're also talking by phone. She's using her son's cell phone or an old cell phone in her house with that phone number uh, in order to chat with him. He likes the sound of her voice. So there's a little bit of a Cyrano aspect to it. Uh, and the things that she says, she's more intelligent. Um, every time they want to meet, you know, there's an issue where uh, something comes up or, you know, she's catfishing him essentially, and he's growing more and more in love with her. And it is uh, leads to some devastating uh, twists and turns. She is someone who is in therapy. You find out why um, as the movie begins, she is recounting her story to this woman who has filling in for her doctor, who I think had had a stroke. So you're going to get more about it. It's an uncomfortable movie. It's very, you know, maddening, very puzzling, but also one I think that a lot of us would be able to have really deep, rich, meaningful discussions about as far as our own lives and relationships and people that we know and our friends and stories we've heard. Uh, because although, you know, it is just shocking to see in the film, like somebody do this and where it winds up, you know, these are stories. These are activities that people take on in our society where we're Life, where our lives are increasingly lived online. And I think Who You Think I Am is a very fascinating, very timely movie. It's far more successful than White as Snow. I kind of watched these uh, sort of in quick succession. And, um, you know, they're both dealing with different, or they're both dealing with similar issues as far as uh, middle-aged female sexuality and are we valuable in today's society and the way that we're looked at and uh, sexuality in general um, and the lies we tell and transactional sex and what is going on and um, different relationships? Are you cheating if it's online? You know, raises a whole lot of questions. I would say check out who you think I am. Is it a perfect film? Of course not, but it is you know, light years better than white as snow makes me curious to see more from Safi Naboo. Um, this one again was written and directed by Safi Naboo. He wrote it along with uh, Julie uh, Pear, I'm assuming is the way you pronounce her name. I might be butchering all of these. And it is also based upon um, a work by Camille Lawrence, and uh, it makes me very curious to see other films by Safi Naboo. So that is who you think I am. I want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. 
other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.